Hello and welcome to Stuff We've Seen. This is Jim. Now there's a lot of stuff to get to today, so I want to jump right into it. But first, allow me to introduce the new head of pre-sale online promotions for Ticketmaster, Teal. How's it going, buddy? Damn Ticketmaster. You score some tickets to the big <laughs> Taylor Swift concert tour? Were you one of the Swifties? I, I'm trying again in an hour and 45 minutes uh, to get tickets on the Capital One presale. Oh, are you a Capital One member? If you have a Capital One card, yes, you can uh, buy tickets earlier than everyone else. No, I know that. That's part, of course, the big overall scams that yes. all of these different credit card companies now, they yes. have these relationships with the monopoly known as Ticketmaster um, Live Media, and they buy up such big batches yes. for their members that now if you just want to be a, you know, if you're a fan and you want to go to the concert, you know, you can't. You know, the highest priced face value ticket for uh for Taylor Swift at, at at the venue I was looking at, a face value ticket, highest price, four hundred and fifty dollars. Now that's not yeah, so bad. And that's not that's not so it's 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 bad, mind you, but that's not so bad. However, no, but the but, person but that's who actually like gets front the, row. Yeah, but the person who actually gets to purchase that ticket, that never happens. It gets purchased by somebody who then resells it for thousands of dollars. Literally fifteen thousand dollars. So imagine you're taking a, a family of four uh to see taylor swift and you're paying sixty thousand dollars for tickets that is and and somebody is doing that somebody's paying it that's i mean they wouldn't charge that much if somebody wasn't going to pay it so sixty thousand dollars you know mo most cars aren't sixty thousand dollars <laughs> multiple things that our congress really should be focused on because it's the stuff that affects regular people, but um, but they but they're not, and certainly not now. You know, I mean, now again, see, this is where our, our show already goes off the rails. But I do want to say one thing, right? And it, and it's not really it isn't it's not about politics and political. However, it's about the media's treatment of the whole affair. The media right. spent two years, right, predicting doom for the Democrats. Yes, and then. And well, no, but then they switched to be like, oh, the Republicans didn't have that red wave. Well, <laughs> the thing is, is they're ba they're putting they're they're basing all that on the fact that Democrats uh, sort of held their own and may walk away with a fifty fifty tie right. or a fifty one forty nine, um, which really until recently when the media was predicting, hey, all these crazy loons that are running for the Senate have a shot, it was really always going to be that way. So then somehow this red wave, which the way I look at it is, no, uh, basically, and if once it's all settled, <laughs> Americans still voted to make Congress in control of the fools that will just stymie the agenda for the next two years. Because of the, what you're talking about, this whole media narrative on this, I feel vindicated. Okay. In totally tuning out election news for the last four or five months. Yeah, I've pretty much been doing that too. I just stopped paying attention. All I do is read Richard Brody these days. 
Uh, I see where you're going there. That's funny. Um, again, <laughs> for, for the listeners out there, the, the discerning listeners who know what that whole controversy is, I feel like that's weeks old unless you want to explain it. Um, we're going to no, I ju- Well, I mean, very briefly, I just think that, uh, you know, there was somebody in, at Gawker who wrote an article saying that Richard Brody, the film critic, one of the film critics at The New Yorker, uh, didn't know what he was talking about because he didn't like a movie that the friend of this writer had seen. Yeah, which and movie so the, was that? Tar. Oh, it was Tar. Richard Brody didn't like Tar? Oh, he hated it. He did? Yes, and we're going to talk about that today. Oh, I, I guess I didn't brush up on See, that's sort of like the, oh, the news I, cycle I, I, I so brushed up to that. Okay, good. Because I, I, I brushed up on Richard Brody and Tar, and it's uh, we're, we'll, ta- we'll get into it in a little bit. But first, we got to catch up. Yeah, well, then let's save that. Um, I know people are like, what the hell? Is, what is this podcast? What is going on here with the podcast? Well, look, um, we've been spending, I feel like, the last several episodes talking about specific genres like horror movies or um, Godard, which is really his own genre, <laughs> the Godard genre. It, he is his own genre. Yeah, I, I think, you know, it, it's interesting, like Tarantino set off a, a Tarantino genre. Right, where people did the fast talking, uh, jokey criminals, and nobody <laughs> really did it. it. Right, there was. I mean, I I remember Siskel and Ebert did a show uh, in the late '90s called the Tarantino Generation. Yes, and it was about all the Tarantino imitators, and Godard started a genre, but nobody else joined him. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, though I saw one film, I did see one movie that really reminded me. Of Godard, um, and it does have a French tie-in, even though an American director who was sort of an expatriate made. Okay, um, and that was called uh, Captain Freedom, I think it's called. And that, it's just, it's a, you, wait, you're, you're saying that's like Godard? Uh huh. Yeah, it is. But I didn't really want to give away too much because I was like, you know what? I don't think Teal's really going to watch this movie. I watched the first um, ten minutes of it. The first 10 minutes gives you all you really need to know. But as you go further and further, the movie (laughs) reminded me of Godard and some of his like crazy political stuff. But anyways, look at people. Now now we're a few minutes in. We've introduced nothing. Uh, What we're going to take you through is a journey through new movies, right? Whether they're streaming or some in theaters. I've actually been to the movies into the theater and seen some stuff. And uh, this is kind of an awkward thing where we don't want to really spoil movies for each other. Uh, Teal and I, we don't care if we spoil it for you. (laughs) Some I don't mind you spoiling. Some I don't want spoiled. Yeah. So what I'm going to really do is just give you a flavor of, hey, this is a movie you may have heard. It's out either streaming or it's in theaters. And my overall thoughts uh, and whether I think that it's worth checking out, maybe try to go to the theater if you're looking to see a film in the theater, or maybe just wait till it's at home or stay away from it entirely. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Well, and if it's worth talking about it, we'll get into it later in the show after I see it, you know, in, in a few weeks or something. Well, or a few months, because what will happen is uh, Teal will make a discovery and he'll be all excited about this movie. And I'll be like, oh, yeah, the one that I mentioned like a year ago. (laughs) And and he'll completely forgot that I mentioned it. So it'll be all new to him. And then I'll have to try to remember what was going on in the film. That happens a lot. Um, So 
<laughs> the first one is, and I was looking forward to seeing it. It's on uh, Roku channel. Uh, is weird. The Weird Al Yankovic story, um, and it was written by uh, Weird Al himself and the director Eric Apple. I don't know. I think it's the guy who's done lots of weird uh, shorts and stuff for like Funny or Die or whatever. Um, and it's a not. <laughs> it's supposed to be a biopic, but it's really a spoof. Of biopics. It's like a Weird Al song version of a biopic. Kind of, yeah. And uh, I think Weird Al, he, he he recognizes that since he does parodies, that the only way to do a movie about his life is it should be a parody. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And so the parody genre he chooses is the musical biopic. And that's been done before once with uh, like Dewey Cox, the, yeah, know, rock the walk hard, or hard story. Yeah, I didn't see that because I don't like those guys. Oh, also, it's a comedy, and I don't find comedy funny. It's okay. Sometimes I don't think you have to, like, laugh at a funny... Like, I think comedies are worth watching whether or not you laugh at them. Yeah. Um, the problem was is that I found that that movie had a couple of jokes, but and, and I appreciated that they were spoofing a very specific type of biopic that was coming out in, in popularity that there was, like, similar themes in the... Um, Walk the Line was that Walk the, the Line and Ray was around that time. Right. And both of those films, they had sort of similar framing devices where a childhood tragedy somehow yes. affected them. And so that's like Dewey Cox made fun of that. And I thought that was kind of amusing. But this Weird Al biopic, it's kind of how I thought that uh, the way a, a spoof of a biopic should be. It's pretty funny and inventive, I would say. Based on the trailers, it looks a lot to me like Rocket Man. Um, it, it makes fun of Rocket Man. Okay, like okay. that's it. it. It's actually, it actually spoofs both Bohemian Rhapsody and Rocket Man. Okay, um, yeah. And so I appreciated that. <laughs> um, but it takes. I, I will say that after a while, it does die down a bit, right? It gets a little slow in maybe the latter half of the second act, but then it, it finds a way to like kind of bring itself back up. Every time it's kind of like, oh, I think it's run its course, it finds a new gear. Okay. And often the comedy is so bizarre, it dials itself up to 11. <laughs> and I think that's really something you just don't see. Um, maybe in the early days of the Zucker brothers, they found a way to dial up things to 11. Then they kind of lost that ability. And that's always hard comedy today, right? There's like a thousand different avenues you can't do because someone's going to get offended. I don't know where Al somehow pulls it off. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Because I recently saw uh, Zucker talking on uh, De the Dennis Prager, uh, Prager U YouTube channel. Oh my God. Well, you know that he's a, a super right wing guy now, right? Well, yes. Yeah. But my point is. Okay. No, he, I'm talking Zucker. Yeah, yeah that's what I'm talking okay. about. I, and yeah. so Zucker was just complaining about political rec uh, correctness and how it's destroyed comedy. But what you're saying is that this Weird Al movie finds a way to be funny and dial it up to 11 despite political correctness, right? So I guess comedy isn't destroyed. Yeah, I would say that the the people that like to kind of lean on that is like, oh, political correctness. These are people that always got the cheap laugh. They went yeah. to the things uh, that you could make fun of because everybody made fun of. And now that people have woken up and said, oh, I said woke. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, but oh, you, I'm gonna. You're canceled. You're canceled, Jim. 
I'm woke. Does that mean I'm canceled? Yeah. No, Anybody just, who uses think, the word woke gets canceled. I didn't mean to. Maybe I'll just edit <laughs> that out. Sneaky me. No. Uh, people people have evolved. And, you know, some things I've, I mean, I recognize there's stuff I, I'm embarrassed that I thought was hilarious back in the day. But I also will recognize, say, if I'm watching an older, like, film or something, and there's comedy in it that... Yeah, maybe sometimes I'll even chuckle at it, but I'll also the the chuckle is filled with like, oh, oh man, can't say that anymore. And it's okay that you can't say it anymore because again, yeah. things that were funny, things that were scary, things that were sad, things that were exciting, all of that stuff in the history of movies, it evolves over time. And if you're a, a, an artist who can't you know, Evolve. change with the times and find things fun and make new things funny. Well, then, then, you know, then you have to admit it's over for you. And that's where, unfortunately, a lot of these white old dudes. <laughs> that's exactly where they've ended up. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, no great loss. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, again, these people that lament, oh, like, yeah, they, 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 they realize that for years, people probably had to put up with their disgusting jokes right. and that behind their back, they're like, I hate this person. <laughs> and and now people feel more free to tell you to your face, I hate you. <laughs> yeah, I hate you and your joke sucks <laughs> and you suck yeah. and uh, you're canceled. Bye. Nobody really actually gets canceled. Uh, okay, we're we're segueing into something we don't want to get into. No, I know because we're going to get into that yeah. that movie in yeah. a bit. Um, oh, Tar again. We're gonna we're gonna keep it, it keeps coming up. This movie Tar. <laughs> well, uh, it's just uh, there's so much to talk about with it. But let's keep going here. You saw weird. I want to see we, weird. Yes, I saw weird, but wait a minute. But also, it, unfortunately, this is again. I, I don't understand. There's certain things. This movie is funny enough that I actually believe that Evan Rachel Wood, uh, who plays a version of Madonna that really yeah. has to be seen to be believed because the character and what the character becomes and does is so outrageous that I think she's worthy of consideration for a supporting actress. I mean, if the girl that was in um, that Barat sequel Right. If she got nominated, and the way I look at it is this is like a performance that's worthy of that. But Roku refused to give Weird Al any kind of theatrical release. Do you know why? It's just their business model. Well, but still, I, you, you, know do, you do a week in a theater in LA and like 50 people go to see it and you qualify. I think that this is something that's similar in a way to Netflix. All of these uh, channels like Roku, they're a device as well, right? And yeah. they're trying to attract people to their device versus like Apple or other devices. And so they want exclusivity on the Weird Al movie. And I again, they don't care about those rewards. Netflix and Apple have figured it out and are doing qualifying releases so they can get those awards. Well, there's a reason why Apple is Apple, Netflix is Netflix, and Roku is Roku. <laughs> okay, good But point. I enjoyed the Weird Al like Yankovic story. I grew up on Weird Al, and it was, it's you know, Dick, but it's very important to me as like part of my, my development as a child. The yeah. discovery of the Dr. Demento show. Me it too. Was, a very important thing in my life and that Weird Al, to listen to the Funny Five and hope that Weird Al, one of yes. his songs, was going to be in there, it was a big deal. And my mom could attest to how into Weird Al I was. I was probably not as into Weird Al, but I was super into Dr. Demento in general. 
I loved the documentary. I would tape it with my tape. Me too. So I could listen to the episodes and all all the different songs. And I desperately wanted to be that guy that would like pretend to be the news reporter and then insert movie clips in as the answers. Uh, Like I didn't, I couldn't never figure out how to really do it. I just didn't have the equipment or the technical know-how to do it right. But those were the things that I, I really loved. And my kids uh, have gone through their own journeys loving Weird Al with my youngest, oh, super, super Weird Al fan. Um, seen him in concert a couple of times. Okay. And so he loved the movie. Uh, and it was it was just a lot of fun. So I do recommend that. I haven't seen it. The only reason I haven't seen it is because my 10-year-old really wants to see it. And so I just am waiting until we have the opportunity to see it together. But. You're depriving her of Weird Al until you feel she's ready. No, she's ready. I'm. I'm we're, we're just. <laughs> just we're just waiting for a time slot to open up. Okay. All right. Um, <laughs> so look, you got to see it. Maybe you'll want to talk about it some more when, when you see it because I don't want to give anything away because yeah. I think there's some hilarious stuff and then even an old cantankerous crank like yourself may find a chuckle <laughs> too. <laughs> see, you're laughing. I'm making you laugh. So comedy isn't dead for you. I think. Huh, interesting. <laughs> I do think of this as a comedy podcast. <laughs> you're laughing. You, but see, you're the comedy part. <laughs> No, but every good team needs a straight person, right? Okay, I guess that's me. I'm 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 Tommy Smothers. Yeah, because you are like the intellectual guy. I'm the guy who's like kind of a schnook, but somehow does know his stuff, even though I don't sound like I know what I'm talking about. Yeah, and you are the one who actually sounds like they know what they're talking about when we get into the movies. But, but I yeah. I don't, but I am capable of sounding like it. Yeah. All right, okay. Hey, man, it's Tarantino, <laughs> oh, man. right? I got that new book out, right? About the 70s, man, all right? Sorry. I, I do <sighs> want to read that book, but anyways. Yeah, uh, anyway. Causeway. Causeway, yeah. a movie that people are like, what? What's that? It's on Apple Plus. It's what they, they picked it up probably for a song shot a couple of years ago. Jennifer Lawrence, I think, was feeling like she needed to get back to her indie roots. So she made this tiny movie directed by someone named Lila Nagabauer. Well, and Jennifer Lawrence like fired her agent and stuff. Okay. Oh, you don't know about this? Um, I mean, don't aren't they all? Aren't all these actors firing their agents at some time or not? Jennifer Lawrence did this whole thing recently around when Cause came out. She did a whole press tour on. I felt like I wasn't in control of my career, and they my agents weren't showing me the kinds of scripts I wanted to do, and I was just doing this big budget nonsense. And I'm done with all that now. I'm firing my agent and my manager, and I'm just going to do projects I want to do, and they'll be whatever they are. I don't know. Uh, So she's doing a major career shift, and I think Causeway was part of that impetus. Well, I mean, look, she's she's still a very young actor, and she's been nominated for, what, four Oscars? Yeah. And won one. Uh, I mean, that's pretty amazing. She is a great actor, and she's good in this movie. Causeway, which is about a um, of, of an army vet who had an accident, and it's mostly like a brain injury than a physical one. As far as like you know, it's not like she's missing limbs or anything like that. And she's trying to reintegrate into society, uh, but all she really wants to do is go back to the military. <laughs> okay, it sounds interesting, but I have zero interest in seeing it. I don't know why. I just it seems so well intentioned. It feels like a 90s independent film, if that makes sense. 
it's not it's not a very strong movie okay. and it's sort of like one of those movies that yeah nothing's on and you're like flipping around not sure what to watch you could put pop this on and it won't hurt you <laughs> um but it's not <laughs> something that i i could really strongly recommend but there was interesting something that happens late in the film caused me to go right to another Apple movie afterwards, which I had seen, but my wife had not. And I thought it was the perfect time to pop it on, which was the Oscar winner from last year, Coda. A movie I didn't really like the first time I saw it. And I enjoyed it more the second time, but all the problems that I had with it were still there. And the fact that it was a best picture winner will still make my head scratch for years. Well, until you look at other best picture winners and go, wait a minute. Okay. Is, is it worse than Crash? I enjoyed it more than Crash, and I also liked it better than um, Green Book, but they're different movies for sure. <laughs> okay, right. Okay, so next film uh, is on HBO Max, and it caused a lot of controversy this fall. It is director and also actor Olivia Wilde's Don't Worry Darling. Well, it, you need to point out the film didn't cause any controversy. There was controversy. No, the movie was super not controversial. <laughs> There was a lot of controversy behind the scenes. Yes. Uh, dust ups with relationships, me, actors not liking each other, actors not liking the director, the director maybe A whole social media debacle. Yeah. I believe that some of that was trumped up by the studio itself to get buzz for a movie that was going nowhere <laughs> if it didn't have that buzz. I'm not kidding. You know who liked this movie? Who liked it? Richard Brody. He did? Yes. <laughs> well, I don't know if the, I haven't, again, we're going to talk about Tar later, but I, but if he didn't like Tar and like this movie, I do question him. And I've seen both movies. I have not, um, you know, I, I, I've not. Uh, I do not feel compelled by Don't Worry, Darling. I, it's one of the, like you were just talking about with Causeway. Eh, if it's on, maybe I'll check it out. And I may check it out just if I'm in the mood for something kind of mindless, because I, my impression of the movie is that it's kind of mindless. Uh, and sometimes I'm in the mood for that. Well, okay. So the the reason why I wanted to see the movie was, A, I thought that Olivia Wilde's uh, breakthrough uh, debut, Booksmart, was good, which was good. And I thought that she showed some interest. I, I don't know if you remember, but I love Booksmart. I know. I remember when I first saw it, you wouldn't watch it. And then you watched it and suddenly became the biggest fan. Um, yeah. But I thought that she showed good directorial chops and so I was def def definitely in for her second film. Um, this movie, I guess, is a bigger film, probably a little bit more challenging. It's probably why she wanted to take it on. And it, uh, I also, it looks like it's set in the 50s or 60s or something. Right. So I'm interested in that. And then surprised that it's kind of a sci-fi movie. It's a sort of a sci-fi horror thriller, I guess. Um, and I knew that from like a little bit of the trailers, though I think that the marketing was terrible in the movie. I think that it didn't lean enough on the sci-fi angle, which oh. might have made it more intriguing to people. But in the end, not only was it kind of predictable, but it, it, it does borrow from like a whole bunch of other movies. And it's just not, there, there's like a lot of things that it just feels like wasn't fulfilled in the movie. Okay, yeah. Um, you know, Florence Pugh's fine. She doesn't have a lot to do. Harry Styles is really not that much of an actor. I think that uh, think the Harry Styles, uh, you know, renaissance here in movies <laughs> might be over. There's another film that is on Amazon Prime that I started watching. It's called My Policeman. Yeah, My Policeman. Yeah. 
it's kind of a slow movie, so I probably will watch it, but I'm not in a rush. Yeah. But, you know, if you like that sci-fi with some twists and turns, uh, I think there's some things that are interesting about it. Yeah, I, I do like that kind of sci-fi stuff, but it just seems like it's derivative, completely derivative. We've seen this movie a million times. And, you know, if it's well executed, that's kind of a fun, fluffy snack, I guess. Yeah, fair or unfair, there's some interesting stuff, but it's hard to explain where there's a difference between stuff that's like kind of visionary and out there and you feel like, wow, this director is really doing some interesting things or some weird out there stuff that you think that a mock director is doing because they think it's going to be innovative and twisted. Right. I know that sounds weird and unfair, but that's kind of how I felt about Don't Worry Darling, that Olivia Wilde might have thought, look at how clever and cool and 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 I'm, I'm being. And and I don't think she was <laughs> as much as she right. may have thought. Right, right. What else do you see? Okay, well, there's, uh, you know, I don't want to get into too much horror because we've had so much horror, but I was waiting for Paramount Plus to drop Smile, which they okay, did yesterday. I, I got to say, just all I want from you on Smile is a thumbs up or thumbs down. I I, I know nothing gonna, about no, this I movie. Don't want, no, I, you know what? Uh, here's the thing. All right, I will tell you this. Out of, you know, I'm judging it based on a lot of the horror movies that right. I saw. And I personally liked- Barbarian? Barbarian way more. Um, oh, really? Way, way more. Way more. Okay. Yeah, uh, because I just felt that the problem I have with Smile, and I'm not telling you any of anybody, yeah. is that, look, if you like horror movies, you're going to watch it, all right? It did big bucks. And I kind of get why, because it's the one that I feel like goes for the easy scares. Um, right. And people seem to love that. And the story, the, the problem I have is that it really, you'll read reviews that says it's a ripoff of a couple of movies. And without reading any reviews, because I didn't really want to know much about the movie right. going in, I immediately saw how much of a ripoff it was of two movies that were both better, and one that I think is one of the best horror movies of the last 20 years. Can I so guess? the fact that, yeah. It Follows. It Follows is the one that I think is one of the best horror films of the yeah. last 20 years, and it takes and pretty much borrows that entire concept. And I don't know, I I would almost sue for, <laughs> for plagiarism. Uh. And, but yet it follows, it had so much more going for it. There was a style. It wasn't right. just interested in jump scares and things like that. And so that bothered me. And then it also, since you've guessed it follows, The Ring is the other one. Right. So you take okay. those two, there are literal like plot concepts from The Ring and It Follows that it puts into its own little batter. Um, so that really makes it not very... It's very predictable. I, I think that anybody knows going in what's going to happen. I can tell you already I'm going to hate this movie. You probably will, but I'm going to tell you one thing, and then here's here's the rub. The fact is, is that even though you know what you're getting, that it is a ripoff of these other things, it is effective because there are some scary moments, some that it's like over the top, I love it, but the whole family decided they wanted to watch this thing, right? We never get all four of us yeah. watching. And my youngest, horror fan, nothing seems to phase him. He was a little bit almost to that point of breaking <laughs> on um, on Barbarian during that first 50 minutes. Right. But 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 then, it, then we were able to take a break and it kind of went into its other direction. He calmed down. This movie, it got him. This movie got him. There's always that one film that gets a kid and it doesn't make any sense why it does. But he started hyperventilating 
and getting oh, upset. Wow. And he was scared and he had some tears, but it was also, he was laughing to overcome the upset because he didn't want to admit how scared he was. We thought we had to shut it off. My oldest was pissed because he was now invested and wanted to watch the whole second <laughs> half. And we we're like, we still have an hour to go and he's not going to make it. And he moved over and he's like next to my wife and she was all huddled and scared too because she finds these things scary. And yeah. Thankfully, the second half gets more into the investigative phase of the journey. And okay. so it kind of tapers off a little bit of the scares. And that was good. So he made it through the movie. But man, if this movie is, is scaring people, right, then I think it's tapping into something. Then that's great. I mean, that's what a horror movie, that's, you know, kind of one of the tests, right? There's all these other things you can look at. But ultimately, if it's scary, then it, you, you kind of put a lot of the other stuff aside. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't scared, but I did find that there were a few scary moments. And I think that, again, in 2022, we talked about this. When I look at X, yeah, that movie ties into the pandemic because you have the like the isolation in place with a group of your friends, right? When we did those clusters back then where, you know, you had yeah. your, your nucleus. Yeah. And so there's like a, there's sort of a tie into the experience that we're having with the pandemic. In Pearl, there's actually a direct tie in that we didn't yes. mention when we've talked about Pearl of an actual pandemic and that's set in 1918 where yes. everybody was yeah. afraid of the flu. <laughs> so I thought that was a really great way. And people, people wear masks in Pearl. It, it's genius. And that's where, why I give Pearl such high marks because it really goes an extra mile. When we talk about Barbarian, it is tapping into people's innate fears when they enter the Airbnb yes. experience that it's not quite like somehow there's that feeling of safety when you're in a hotel, even though people get robbed at hotels all the time. But that when you're in Airbnb, you just don't quite feel 100% safe. Yeah. And then just the way Barbarian has these basically three basements. And sort of, you know, you think one's bad and then you think the next one is bad and then it gets even worse. And it, it that's just a really effective uh, visual and psychological uh, horror move for the movie to make. And I found it really effective. I was freaked out by Barbarian, you know, to, to the extent that I get freaked out. Well, weird way I think that Smile fits into this whole equation is that it is talking about traumatic experience and mental health. Okay, that I feel like is a good topic for horror these days. And that's why I think people are scared is because people have been um, through this traumatic event, whether they admit it or not, especially the people who denied that there was any big deal, right. but it's had a tremendous psychological impact. And the people basically in mental health, in healthcare, can't keep up with the demand. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's... Uh just what's going on in my kids' schools with traumatized children who, you know, are refusing to leave the house kind of thing. There's a lot of that stuff going on. Sort of, yeah, we, we talked to a guidance counselor recently, and he was basically saying, yeah, the, the level of trauma that these kids have gone through is really something that, as a society, we have to deal with. Well, yeah, because, you know, you and I personally and our families, I mean, th th there's another level that there are kids that have lost parents, that have lost grandparents. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, never got to see, like, say, grandparents again because of lockdowns. There are 
kids that were juniors in high school when this happened and they lost the rest of their junior year and sometimes their senior year, which yeah. are key years in, in the social development. Um, I mean, you know, it's far and wide. So I think that while the plot of Smile and the concept, I feel, was a bit of a ripoff, I have to give it something that there's definitely a pandemic tie-in that I think people are responding to in this movie, and that makes it smart. So again, while it's not my favorite of the batch of horror movies, I can't say I entirely didn't enjoy it. Right. And I and I somewhat recommend it, especially if people want a good scare. I mean, if you have the Paramount Plus, it's right there. Go for yeah, it. Yeah. So my plan is with Smile. You know, I like we've your talked daughter, about it. your oldest is going to want to watch it with her friends. I got a little over hard in October. Yeah. That's the way I felt in November. I felt like I shouldn't be watching this movie. Putting Smile aside until I'm just in the mood for something like that. And then, you know, I I, I can pull it out of my, uh, off the shelf and watch it. But I'm not in a rush to watch it just because, you know, I got a little too much horror. I hear you. Um, now, listen, I was in, I went to the theaters as well. Yeah. Okay. And I've seen some things and I had to go up north. And and so I try to make a a big day of it and see some stuff. Um, I saw a movie that a lot of people wouldn't even know what the title. They'd never heard of it before. It's a movie that I've been hearing about from critics. Uh, It was the winner of the best director at Cannes this year. Mm -hmm. And it was called Decision to Leave by um, noted South Korean director Park Mm Chan-wook, the person who directed Old Boy. Yes. And Lady Vengeance and yeah. Yeah, Lady Vengeance. And so, you know, he's sort of a genre master. And I have admit to not really have seen any of his films. So this would be my first real. Wait, you've seen Old Boy, right? No, I haven't. What? No, I haven't. What? Well, remember, like, we used to do these episodes where it was like, (laughs) you can't believe you haven't seen a film. Well, that's the one that, like, everyone's seen and says is great and I haven't seen. Okay. And I have to have to like have time so I can kind of forget some of the plot stuff in there that that kind of get leaked out because everybody feels everyone's seen it. But right, but I gotta say, even even if you know some of the spoilers on that movie, it's so well done that it kind of doesn't matter. And I think that's the key here. When you're really in the hands of a, of a directorial master like uh, Park Chan Wook, I can tell in this movie the direction of this film is very unique. Um, the, just the decisions, the, the the shots, the angles, the setups, and it, it's in a different approach to a neo-noir. Um, and so, you know, you and I, we're, we're pretty familiar with the noir movies. Yeah. So if you're familiar with that, I think you're going to be familiar with some of the clues in the film and how these uh, detective stories kind of evolve. Um, so I don't think there was anything for me super, super surprising in here. However, I think less noir experienced people will probably be mind blown of the stuff in this movie. Okay. But it is about a detective investigating what looks like a, a, a suicide, but he's got one of these very specific minds and he just, he spots things that other people don't spot. And he believes that this man's much younger wife doesn't seem to be very upset at the death and he just probes further and he believes that she might have somehow been involved though it doesn't seem to make any sense because the guy was up on the top of this cliff he was like a he was like a mountain climber guy and there's like this amazing thing at the beginning where him and his underling they have to go up to the top to see what's maybe up there and 
there's like an easier way to get up there, but he instead wants to go the same route that the guy fell down. So you see him climbing up, (laughs) up this like steep mountainside with his partner kind of um, harnessed to him (laughs) and this very unusual angle that they're walking. And it's just, it's just kind of weird stuff that is in through this entire movie that for I think the two and a half hours that this film is, it took me on a journey that I really was engrossed by. Okay, that's so. I recently watched uh, Spike Lee's Old Boy. See, I think you even mentioned this one before. I heard it's terrible, and it may have tarnished my desire to see the original. But I haven't seen Spike Lee's version either. It made me realize that the story of Old Boy is not that great. And this is what I was just saying. With like, even if you know some of the spoilers, the movie is so well done. So you take the same basic skeleton of the story and then have uh, this American remake and it's terrible. And it, and it, I felt like this, I was bored by the story. And so there's really, and because I'm suspecting there may be an American remake of Decision to Leave, but what you're saying is these camera angles, the visual, the the, the execution of it is so good that some of the story is forgiven a little bit. I think when you see this movie, you're going to want to have a discussion on it on the show because you will be like, wow, this guy's doing things. It was kind of like how Parasite, Parasite's story isn't that great. It's just that when you see a director with such a different vision, it excites people when they end up seeing the movie. Exactly. Yeah. And Spike Lee's Old Boy is, it's got to be the worst Spike Lee film by far. It looks like he's asleep through it. And Hmm. yeah, just anything that was interesting or inventive about the original is gone. Well, I will see more Park Chan-wook movies after seeing this decision to leave because it's definitely, I you know, I don't know where I'm going to end up until I see all, all the big movies of this year, but I would say that it's definitely one of the best directed movies I've seen this year. Yeah. And you saw one more. Yeah. Yeah. I saw Banshees of Inishirin, which is in theaters now. Uh, director Martin McDonough, who did In Bruges, which I really liked. Yep, and me too. then he did the, it did something about like crazy criminals or something. Oh, Seven Psychopaths? Yeah, which I couldn't get through. Yeah. And then he did the three billboards, uh, which I hated. <laughs> And I never saw it. Yeah. um, Oh, you didn't see three billboards? No, I just couldn't get enthusiastic about it. Well, I couldn't get enthusiastic about it when I watched it. Um, Now, Banshees (laughs) of Inishirin is an interesting movie. For some reason, you know, I've been hearing a lot of hype. I wanted to love it. I just did. But I found that I admired it more than I loved it. Like it just, there was something, it didn't grab me as I'd hoped. And maybe because I wasn't what I was expecting, I think. It it doesn't, I thought, I didn't, had no idea really. I just knew it was like some cute little Irish village, right? And there were these two friends and they don't get along anymore. That's all I knew. And I didn't realize that it's a very specific area of Ireland at a very specific place and time. Oh, interesting. It doesn't reveal that right away, but eventually you get, if you know Irish history, I think you're going to clue in a little bit earlier than than me, but it does take place in 1923. Oh, oh, I didn't realize that. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I didn't, I, I didn't either. And actually I wished, I, I kind of wish I knew going in because I think it would have been more interesting because I'm watching this movie and maybe this is the director's intention. I'm trying to figure out 
Well, at first you're thinking, oh, it's one of those like kooky villages and they probably, right. you know, they live life that's not very modern. And after a while, I'm like, no, wait a minute. This takes place <laughs> some time ago, but I don't know exactly when. And eventually you discover, um, I think through the script is pretty clever, that it's 1923, which happens to be the tail end of the Irish Civil War. Yeah. So you have that as a very remote backdrop, but then you have this almost civil war brewing within the, this tiny little town of these friends that for no good reason are not going to be friends anymore. And it's one has made that decision. And the other, played by Colin Farrell, he can't understand for the life of him why this guy won't be friends with him anymore. Okay, interesting. It seems like there's two charming lead performances, potentially, and that can go a long way in making a movie enjoyable. All the mo- all the performances are, are flawless, uh, especially Colin Farrell's sister is played by this Irish actress, uh, Carrie Condon. And she oh, yeah, is I like, the I like her. Yeah. daughter-in-law on uh, Better Call Saul of yeah. Mike Ehrmantraut. She's fantastic. I mean, look, it, there's no way these actors aren't getting nominated. They're, they're, they're great. I mean, Colin Farrell's never been better than he is in this movie. Um, there's also that weird kid, Barry Cogan, uh, from oh, Killing yeah. of a Sacred Deer is in it. You know, this is a movie where it's weird. I, I Like I said, I, I, I didn't like it. Maybe because I saw it on top of Decision to Leave. It's a different experience. I had a long drive. I was a little tired. However, it's one of those movies that it grows in the hours and days after you see it because right it's a movie that if you you know you have those films that you know that the person you're talking to is never going to see it so you don't mind like telling them the story as <laughs> right. if it's a story <laughs> this is one of those great movies that it's fun to tell people the story about it and i'm not going to do it to spoil anything yeah. for you so i'm going to just leave you with this but i think that it's absolutely worth watching um it is a good movie i just for some reason i just wanted it to take me to a place that it didn't quite take me. And maybe it's a movie on a second watch. It will. I don't know. Okay. Well, I definitely want to see it. What's his name? Hosted Saturday Night Live not that long ago. And- <laughs> yeah, I know. That was funny, uh, which is uh, Brendan Gleeson. And he's Brendan the Gleeson, other yeah. friend, the person who decides that he doesn't want to spend any more time talking to who he thinks is a dullard, <laughs> Colin right. Farrell, anymore. So now we've got... I think we're going to enter into some crossover. There's a couple of movies that we've both seen. And so you've seen a movie that I've not seen. That you want to see. I, well, I mean, I, don't, I didn't want to see it enough to see it in the theaters, but. Well, no, nobody wanted to see it enough to see it in the theater. It, uh, it, it was, it, I'm, we're talking about Amsterdam. Total bomb. Massive bomb. Made no money. Well, it was a bomb because it, it, it cost a lot to make, I think. It, it was very expensive, but also they, uh, they put a lot into marketing, too, actually. Now, was this made before the pandemic? You know, that's a good question, and I don't know. Only because if you were going, like, like, who would greenlight this kind of movie and expect people to go to the theater in mass in the theater <laughs> yeah. uh, post-pandemic? And that, yeah, I guess I, the uh, question is, is that even pre-pandemic, was it something that people were going to rush into the theater to see? Well, I, do, I, I don't know what the budget was, but it shows on screen because this movie is beautiful. Emmanuel Lubezki shot it just on the, on a technical level. This movie is just wonderful beautiful to look at the editing is great i like what david o russell does with his camera it's sort of he's almost floating in malick territory at times well but is that could could that be lobieski then yes 
because Lobieski shoots the Malik. So yes. would that be O Russell or what Lobieski's been doing? <laughs> I think it's I, you know, I think it's a little bit of both, but I th- I think they kind of met in the middle here, and I was immediately sort of taken with the filmmaking, and then. The three lead performances, Christian Bale, Margot Robbie, and John David Washington, are so charming and so fun to watch that I was initially incredibly charmed by this movie. And I was like, what What was everyone talking about? I mean, also, I went in with very low expectations. I was expecting a complete, sure. complete disaster from start to finish. And so I was very forgiving with the movie, but basically just on the strength of those three performances, it was very enjoyable for quite a while. But eventually it it peters out. (laughs) And it's really disappointing because it's an interesting story. And there's a, do you know the backdrop story? A little bit, but I mean, again, I I think we're just doing an introduction. I don't want to you know, give away too much for people. If you know what it is, great. I won't go into the details, but the background story is the business plot. Right. And so if you know the business plot, great. That So it's sort of moving towards uh, this sort of mystery conspiracy. And I got it. You know, these characters, Christian Bale is just so fun to watch in this movie. And that's almost enough to carry the whole movie. But the third act of this movie completely disintegrates. And part of it is like, there's an interesting story and an interesting mystery going, and then everything is rushed and the whole story is just explained in dialogue and voiceover. All the tension and everything that was sort of moving it along just kind of fizzles out into total disarray. And I ended up being really, as much as I was charmed by it in the few days after I saw it, it just started to fall apart more and more in my mind. And uh, so I understand the credit. The, the, I understand why it got negative reviews. So how long is this movie? It's two hours and fifteen minutes. So do you think that it's a movie that may have existed at one cut, like at two hours and fifty minutes, and then they're like, no, 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 and then of course once you start editing down, it loses something. I think that is very possible, and it has this kind of very free floating energy in the first hour and a half and then it it feels like it's rushing the story but it also feels like it's being rushed on a script level too it's not just editing because there's things that are done in dialogue that should be done through cinematic logic or grammar and that should build tension and don't and they shot this dialogue and i mean it's literally like robert de niro comes out at the end and basically explains the plot i'm gonna have to see this movie yeah i mean i wanted to i just i guess you know you can only get to so many things it ties into current politics in a way it does sort of have a undercurrent political statement and I think that maybe that, given what the, the the sort of binge that you and I are on right now, uh, which we'll sort of get into maybe today, uh, but we ah, can. I don't think so. <laughs> uh, I don't think so. But I'll mention it briefly as we've been talking a lot about fascism, uh, sort of off the show and watching some movies about fascism. And this movie touches on that. And I think that its ultimate message about that is a little bit simplistic and kind of trite. Right. And then you start to wonder, well, why was it even in there if it wasn't going to really be 
Exactly. Yeah. And so it feels like it's kind of thrown in there, but then it's not even really explored as plot and it kind of takes away from the character story. And so basically I feel like the film is a little, is is kind of a mess, but it's super charming because of this great filmmaking and cinematography and performances. Well, you know, uh, my wife always describes it whenever that she's just like, is that that movie where every single actor in Hollywood is in? <laughs> yes. And I'm like, that, yes, because it's yeah. like, that's the one. And she's like, I do want to see that one where every single actor in Hollywood is in. <laughs> my kids want to see it because Taylor Swift is in it. Um, Swifty. But she's not in it very much. Hmm. Sounds like she gets killed off, but I don't know. So let's keep it spoiler free. <laughs> um, so, okay. So I do want to see that and I will see that at some point and maybe we'll talk about it because as, as we explore these uh, movies about fascism or that yeah. deal with it in different ways, maybe that will come back in now that once I've seen it. I think it will. Yeah. Because it's, it's, it's an interesting, I think all these films that touch on it are, are trying to say something about it and that sometimes they succeed, sometimes they don't. Yeah. Except for one movie. That uh, And I think that the only reason that you mentioned it to me and said you should check this out is because we've been talking about fascism. Yes. There is a horror film out there on demand that I really think that you've got to stay away from people. And it's called Soft and Quiet. It's a Blumhouse film. I knew nothing going into this film. And I just, it had good reviews on Metacritic. So I thought, well, what the hell? I'm, I, 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 and actually, I went into this thinking, eh, I want something kind of light. <laughs> Yeah, that was not, well, it says soft and quiet. Ha, ha, ha. I really don't want to give this much air because I hated this movie so much. I think it's worth giving it enough air to let people know they shouldn't watch it and why. It's only 91 minutes, which I think is great for a horror film. Though really the concept that I think is what propelled them to do this is that it's all done in one continuous shot, which I don't know whether or not it is or not. And they may have done some little like secret editing. Yeah, there is a little secret editing. I did some research, but very little secret editing. Well, like, there's like a, like as it, it gets darker and darker, which is also unrealistic because the start of the movie is somebody like after school, and after school in my book ends at three thirty in the afternoon, not like at six or whatever it was. No, it depends on what film. time of year it is, though. I mean, no, no, because there's actually a scene where they show a clock, and that shows oh. that it's like seven o'clock. See, I'm a detail. When you're gonna put, when you're gonna pull the one one uh, shot thing on me, I'm watching everything. In so the they film. did actually shoot it at sunset. I mean, that's the. You're right that they got out of school too late, but they actually timed it and they did the film 30 seconds earlier each time they shot it, so that it would always get dark at the same time. I mean, this movie to me um, is a failure on so many levels. But the but 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 what makes it, I think, the ultimate failure is the fact that it's one take because uh, you have to have a reason why you're yeah. doing it in one take. And to me, there's no reason that this movie had to be one take. I think you can do it in real time, but if you just do a few setups, you can maybe get better performances, you can get different tension, um, and you, you could just cut to some things. I know that they maybe that the director thought you're going to have this really intense experience, but I think that it's a failure. I think that even doing it in real time would be a failure. I think up to a certain point, you could do it in real time. But once they're in the house, it becomes so unrealistic to me that it's in real time. 
right? I there, there's maybe the real time leading up to that I can buy as sort of building tension and getting caught up in this moment and whatnot, but it goes so fast once they're in the house and things ha- escalate way too quickly, and there isn't enough time. Realistically, if this was happening, there would be pauses where they would stop and talk about and think about what was going on, and they just rush through it, and it robs the film of any potential moral tension. Is what I, you know, I think would be going on there. There would be more time for doubts, questions, accusations, all this sort of interplay between these characters that it has the potential to do, and just does not explore at all and that's a massive failing well i will say that the opening part of the of this uh, journey it does it, there's some intriguing things that happen at the beginning about with this lead character that made both my wife and i go boy that's kind of weird yeah. and then there's a reveal that i thought was pretty spectacular as well as horrifying yes but after that reveal the rest of the movie goes downhill real fast completely and but it, and it's it's sad because it's such a good setup. Yeah. And it really made me question when you make a film like this, and I know we're being very vague and people might be like, well, I maybe should check this soft and quiet out. Look, I'm giving you a warning. You don't want to. It, yeah. it, it definitely got a torture porn aspect to it. And I'm not a torture porn kind of guy. I don't find those kind of things especially well, enjoyable. It, it's all, even if you're into torture porn, I feel like this film doesn't work on that level. <laughs> This movie demands like you to ask questions and also questions of the filmmaker of like, yes. what's the point of this movie? And I really feel like if you're successful, you'll understand there was a point. And in this case, I don't. And what you're putting these actors through, I really feel justifies what, why are we watching this movie? And I didn't get an answer. <laughs> well, and the first 20 minutes made me think this movie has something to say. And so I stuck with it with, you know, I thought, okay, this is like a micro budget kind of, you know, it's dealing with some interesting ideas about racism and fascism and things, uh, things like that. Then hate crimes and whatnot that's going on around, uh, you know, that's it, a topic of conversation in our world today. And I thought maybe this has something to say, but at the end of the day, it has nothing to say. Well, and also, I mean, this is where once we get to this one big reveal, um, this, this sort of women's group club meeting, what they're saying, the dialogue between them is terrible. It's, it's terrible. really a bunch of yeah. cliched stuff. Yeah. And I just don't think that the writer-director, which is a uh, person named Beth DeRoyo, it just wasn't up to the task. I mean, sometimes people think they're better writers than they are, and this one just needed better writing. <laughs> it's just a bunch of cliches. There's no subtlety to it, and it could have been... You know, I, I would watch a whole real-time movie of just that meeting if it was well-written. Yeah, and if they right, and at the end, it came with a payoff. But again, yes. it, it wasn't that way. And I, I have a problem with most one-take films because... In, you know, inherently, it's kind of a stunt. And yeah. I think that Birdman kind of pulled it off well, only because it's backstage stuff of a play and rehearsals, and it's jumping in time yet through one take, and that's fascinating. That's the thing with Birdman, though, is that it's not real time. That's what I'm saying. That's why I find it fascinating. It's one take, but it's not real time. So yeah. I, I, I don't mind that experiment. I, I have a little bit more of issues in 1917 where I feel like, it would have been a better movie without it being one take. Yeah, and both of these are movies I don't like, though. 
You know, I didn't. Right. I, I don't like Birdman. I don't like 1917. I haven't seen this uh, movie Victoria, uh, which is another one take movie that came out in 2015, which I'm now curious to check out because uh, it's supposed to be good. And I gave you that other one to watch, that noir one. Yes. And that actually wasn't bad. But again, I think that it, it can be exciting and fun for actors to have to, like, you know, do long parts of dialogue and also, you know, the, the chance to stretch themselves. But I also think that sometimes, because you don't have the benefit of editing, you you uh, reveal some of the weaknesses in the dialogue and the script. And, and I understand, yes, it can be fun for actors, but actors also do plays, which are the same thing. And <laughs> so. yeah, but did you, but you have to find a way to make it not like a play. But 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 I guess one of the reasons why I thought we should end here on soft and quiet before we talk about, I guess, is going to be the last film. We're really not going to get into the fascism stuff today. Is a film that proves my point in a lot of things that we've talked about in the movies we've seen. Is uh, director Todd, writer director Todd Fields, Tar, uh, his first film in like 16 years. He's yeah. only made three movies. Uh, you feel like he should have made a whole batch more. And this movie, and I, I was not a big fan of In the Bedroom, his first movie, very critically acclaimed. I really did like uh, Little Children, uh, which I'd read that book and I thought he did a great adaptation. But to me, Tar's the film that brings it all together. And he does things in this film that, for me, hands down, unless I see a better movie, he's the best director of the year in my book. This is what directing is all about. He has a complete vision, and he does things. There's stuff in the script that actually ties into the filmmaking style. You're dealing with a, you know, a allotted uh, conductor, composer, Kate Blanchett. And she talks about what a conductor does and how yes. they control time. And Todd Field, in his directing and editing of this movie, which, I mean, he wasn't the editor, but, like, he he plays with that construct. There's an amazing Absolutely. sequence that is one take, which is where she's uh, doing that course at Juilliard. As you can tell, there's a lot to discuss with our next film, Tar, and Teal and I didn't want to have to edit it down um, just for time. So we are going to uh, split this episode in two. And in the next part, which will be out in a week or less, we will get into a full discussion of Tar, and that will be close to an hour. Uh, so we found ourselves with a lot to say. Sometimes we bring in some other films' uh, subtext, and a few other different topics come up, as they always do. And, and like I said, rather than having to uh, trim out any of the content, we felt that you might want to uh, listen to the whole thing. So look forward to that, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. And, uh, you know, again, stuff we've seen.com. That's where you can find all the episodes. Tell your friends, tell your buddies. All right, this is Jim signing off. I look forward to talking to you uh, very soon with part two.